Hello, my name is Joseph Stember and I am the host of today's episode where we will be discussing the journey of an entrepreneur who built a technology company that provides big data analytics for the oil and gas industry. I'm excited to introduce the CEO and founder of Mobilize, Amit Mehta. Amit, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Awesome. I know that you've split your time between Silicon Valley and Texas. Where are you joining us from today? So I'm actually joining from Houston, Texas. Oh yeah? Okay. Big, the big state of Texas. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Did you grow up in Texas? No, I did not. I was actually born in India and I grew up in England and then moved okay. here. What was your childhood like in uh, England? You know, it was interesting because I actually was one of those people who actually had a really good personal life, thanks to a blessed family. But it was very hard being a minority individual, trying to find my um, place in the sun. You know, what typical minorities could uh, potentially fight when they're growing up. So definitely I had that element of it, which made me always work harder than the others. Luckily, having a very supportive family kind of helped balance that lack of confidence, you know, back in the childhood. So that was definitely a boon. I don't know what I would have done without it. That's great. And what did your parents do? Yeah, no, my parents were actually in Africa at that time. You know, I used to visit them three times a year. They essentially have been um, public accountants all their life, like bankers primarily. They always told me become anything but not a banker. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Did that influence your future decisions either in primary school or the years leading up to college? No, I think it's very interesting, right? Born to an Indian family. Um, up to the age of 21, all my steps were already guided. In Indian families, your parents actually, you know, give you a lot of financial support. So it was very directed uh, that, you know, we, because of our experience, we believe you should be an engineer, right? So that was a big push. So unknowingly, I just had to study engineering, whether I liked it or not. Having gone to good school where I did have 50% scholarships and 50% they funded, it was really directed. I would say first 21 years of my life was directed by a really experience of my parents. Mm -hmm. And after that, I really control my own life. Okay. Wow. And then I, I noticed that you went on to go to the University of Cambridge. All right. You got a bachelor's and a master's in manufacturing and management. You know, for a lot of students, it's difficult figuring out what they want to do. But seeing that you went on to get your master's in the same field, I'm, I'm curious if that was the case for you. I think one advantage you get in England is you actually can do bachelor's and master's in four years versus uh, six years in the US, right? So I think that was my big draw because I always grew up thinking as a, as a child that you know, people who work hard first 30 years enjoy for a remainder 70, people who mess around for first 30 try for a remainder 70. So it's very laser focused on trying to get a lot of uh, these degrees out of the way so they can serve as a safety net, right? When I start taking big risk in life, right? So I think it was more about that, that let me just get done a bachelor's and a master's. Um, the particular reason I chose this course was, it was a very practical course. And that time, you know, for me, it was very, actually my parents wanted me to study computer science. I was really bad at coding, but I had to be an engineer. So I found my way in the first year because I had a chance to experiment. I did attend some courses on civil engineering, some with manufacturing, some on mechanical, some computer science. And I quickly discovered that it'd be better for my personality to actually learn more about industrial engineering, manufacturing, right? Because I was always an artist as a child. Imagining something and completing it was always something fun, right? So when I started looking at, you know, how you design things, how do you actually then bring them from design to a prototype, from prototype to actually something which you and I can actually touch and feel, that excited me. Mm -hmm. The first year was more of experimentation. And I did quick experiments to figure out where I really want to focus on my second and third year of the degree. 
which led to the bachelor's and then one year was just master's. Would you recommend to someone else to get their bachelor's or their, their master's or even both for someone who wants to start their own company? Great question. You know, um, personally, my, my always take at this is that you go to college to really develop some soft skills like discipline and uh, building a good network and getting a brand name behind you. It's almost like a passport, right? You need a passport to enter a country. So when you're backed with good credentials, you can always tout those credentials lifelong after that. Like even today, people, you know, talk about my Cambridge background more than what I've achieved with Mobilize, right? Mm -hmm. And it's pretty interesting because I think that's how our, our brains are wired. So I think my take would be that it doesn't, you know, degrees don't really, you can't really use a lot of it. But what you do gain is that working in that cutthroat competition, working with those, like I was around really smart people, right? And that really elevates you as well to be better. So I think that's what you really get uh, in terms of soft skills. There are a lot of soft skills which a college doesn't teach you, which I'll cover later. But I think that was the main reason if I was to you know, summarize it. Yeah. Well, that's, that's exciting. I'm curious, when did you decide to move to the U.S.? Is that right after Cambridge or did you stay in England and pursue more of your career first? No, I did. Uh, you know, my stint with my first company was actually in England. I got an opportunity to be uh, with them to come to the U.S. And uh, essentially, I think it was all, I would say, God-directed steps of coming to U.S. I really wanted to be here for six months and not really stay here because all my mates were back home, right? So I came for six months but then never left because I found this to be a very entrepreneurial country. Okay. And uh, which company did you come over transfer? Yeah, I was with McKinsey. Okay. And did a very short stint. I didn't have a really good experience with them, but I did do a short stint there for a couple of months before I just jumped into being an entrepreneur myself. Can you, can you tell me a little bit about that experience transferring from a, I guess, a typical career, but like a very uh, well-known company? How was that transition from that to entrepreneurship? I think, you know, um, my assessment of life is that when you have less responsibilities, it's, it's easy to take big risk, right? So even when you start a job making six figures, it was easy to quit and start something which could be a bigger potential, not because you're doing more money, right? Because, you know, you don't have too many responsibilities on your shoulders, you know, early on, right? Mm -hmm. So for me, it was very important that, um, you know, I take big risk when I'm younger than when I'm older, because I had friends who would always tell me, oh, I wish I could be an entrepreneur. I wish I could do this, but because I'm married and I had kids, you know, I can't do all that. So I just never wanted to be in that crowd. So luckily I had older friends and they, they told me what the experiences were and they could not really, they're big regrets in life. So I wanted to kind of jump in. So I think the biggest reason was that thing that I had a very good safety net with my education. Mm -hmm. I always knew I can always get a job but I never want to regret 10 years down the road that, oh, I never start, you know, never made a company. Yeah. You know, so I think that was the more drive that, hey, let me try. And if I fail, I fail, who cares, right? Um, I'll come back and do the job because I'm highly educated, right? Right. So I think that, that was really what led me to plunge. That was number one reason. Number two reason was, I won't go into too many details, but my experience wasn't the best because I quickly discovered that, you know, the corporate, you know, world in general, is full of politics and red tape and you know how you can smoosh people and i was always a maverick right from my childhood experiences so i just never could do it so i knew for me the best thing is to start something on my own versus yeah. work for someone 
No, that's uh, very well said. Speaking of credentials, actually, some people will think that, you know, having work experience is another form of having those credentials or kind of replacing those credentials. Do you think that the experience that you had at McKinsey also uh, added to that, those credentials in, and to starting your own business? I think a little bit. I think a little bit it helped, but I think it was really the Cambridge uh, name, which actually has really worked for me than anything else to date, uh, to be honest. Because if you think about these global consulting firms, which includes McKinsey, Bain, all that, they're very high level, right? It's more about strategic planning and what's going to happen 10 years or 15 years down the road. But they never really go down to the execution details, hmm. at least in my time, right? So I think you, you can really get that when you, when you kind of delve into you know, other sort of companies or you start your own businesses, right? I would really say that a lot of credit goes to my um, education. And I always tell my friends even today, no matter what you do, even if you ever take a debt, I would rather go to a good school because that's going to go with you lifelong versus just going to a, you know, just a random school because no school is bad. But I think it's just, again, back to how we brand things, right? If somebody drives a Lamborghini, that's going to, you know, catch more attention than someone driving a Toyota, right? Right. It's just how our brains are wired. It's a brand name, right? Mm-hmm. So I think brand name schools, in my opinion, are more important um, than just going to any, and, and it's a dilemma, right? When you are, when you're young, broke, naive, you know, you just want to get a degree because you, you could you'd be taking a huge loans, right? So maybe I was a little lucky that I did not have to take out those loans and I had scholarships plus my folks who were supporting me. So I think that really helped. But, you know, if I was to turn the clock and do it, I would, I would still try to go to a good school whether on scholarships or some way to get in there, because I think that is very, very critical than just having, just go to any, you know, school, which is not a brand name. Absolutely. And, you know, you mentioned that you were lucky that you had the support of your family and scholarships, but I think most people know it's pretty hard to get into Cambridge. So I'm curious, when you were preparing for university, did you have a sense of what you wanted to do with that education or what level of success you wanted to have? It's a great question. So let me tell you a little bit about a childhood story. So when I was 14, I was visiting, uh, sorry, when I was 15, I was visiting Africa, right, to see my folks. I was very lucky to, um, my mom is a big volunteer. She would take us to these foundations. So I used to go to this foundation, it's an orphanage in Zambia. You know, we'll give like mini meals, they call it mini meals there. We'll give them mini meals to kids and they will sing songs for you and say thank you, right? So when at a young age you're exposed to something like that and you're out of your shell completely. So I started questioning, uh, you know, to my parents, like, how come I have a life like this? And, you know, here I am, you know, going to England as well. But what about these kids? They don't have family and they live in like these, these conditions, which I just can't imagine. So I think, um, you know, that left an impact on me. And then when I was in England, I read about Bill Gates giving $150 million to eradicate malaria. And that was to India, I believe that time. So I was like, you know, wait a minute, who is this bloke? Who is this Bill Gates, right? In England, I didn't even know about Bill Gates, to be honest, because entrepreneurship wasn't that big, you know, a decade back, right? So I started reading about him and, you know, it just started to have all those thoughts in my mind. Wait a minute, my dad's pretty well off, but, you know, he can't give 115 million to eradicate something. So I think that's when I found my purpose. With the more I went back to Africa during holidays, the more I'll spend time in orphanages, I started making friends there. As children, you actually end up promising, you know, other children who, are you, who you're playing with at the orphanages. So I ended up, you know, telling some kids there, that I promise you, I'm going to come and change your life one day. And that was a complete naive, innocent comment, but it just stuck with me. 
So I always knew after reading about Bill Gates that I have to do something big and it can't be done by just, you know, working for someone. So I think that was a big push. Going to a good school was really a push from my parents uh, because, you know, you're right. When, when you're 18, you have no clue, right? You know, even if you have straight A's and you have good grades, right? You, you're not thinking about, oh, I want to go to good school. I just thought that I want to be an entrepreneur for the reason I just gave you, right? Because right. I knew that's the only way to make a big impact. But going to a good school was really pushed by my parents because they said, you have good grades, you deserve it, just go. And I was like, sure, you know, I don't know anything about it, so I'll just go. I would say big thanks to my parents that she pushed me to actually go to good school. What I did not know at that time is how much it actually benefits you, you know, down the line when you actually have a brand name. I had the blessing and, and I was lucky to have, you know, folks that could guide me. But there are a lot of people who don't get that guidance. So I want to make sure everybody knows that you should go to good school for this reason, you know, because it's priceless experience um, when it comes to lifelong after that. Absolutely. I'm also curious, you know, did that, uh, that same influence from your parents uh, push you towards McKinsey as well? No, I think, uh, you know, when you're at, at, at like, let's say England Ivy League schools compared to US, you always get big top brands come to try and grab you, right? So it was more about just getting some experience. Like, you know, you read about strategy, you read about all this, what is all this stuff, right? So it was more about just getting some experience behind my back. I think that was kind of the big drive, you know? And like I said, I think my first 21 years were, were kind of guided by my parents. But after that, I really took, you know, ownership of my entire life. Yeah. That was a big, uh, big difference. So, you know, do I sometimes say, oh, why, well, why did I go to these places? Probably can doubt it, right? But the only thing I, could, I would never doubt is going to a good university. Yeah. From my past experience. Okay. Now I'm, I'm curious, uh, you know, you're, during your time at McKinsey, at some point you decided that you were going to leave and become an entrepreneur. What was the, the catalyst and what made you decide to finally pursue that? I think it was a, just a bad experience. I never wanted to um, be an entrepreneur right away. I think it was just one of those bad experiences. I was just unlucky to work for a work for an individual who was just not the right person, and that just drove me into it uh, much faster than I than I wanted to. It was just one of those. I think by accidents, I was doing a project in uh, oil and gas, and I realized that there is like this industry is way behind, and I just happened to jump into oil and gas because that was where the project was. You know, I think after I looked at it, I said, you know, this is unsexy market. You know, I don't know too much about U.S., you know, really. So if I'm here, might as well start something here. And I think that's what it kind of, so it was, I would say it was really by accident uh, how it all started. Okay. Do you think that you need a certain level of confidence to start a company? And uh, if so, where do you think that confidence comes from? I had the least amount of confidence when I started, I'll tell you that. Uh, because for the reasons you mentioned, right, you are, you are so young, you're naive, you don't know anybody. You're kind of jumping in with only one thing in mind that, oh, you know, I don't care about money right now because I'm young, right? Uh, who cares about money right now? I think it was more about that selfless goal in mind. I think for me, it was uh, more about, I have this set up this big goal and this big purpose for myself, which is I want to really go and help kids in third world countries. I want to help them, you know, help these orphanages so they don't have, they have education, they have infrastructure, all that, right? So that was a big goal, which really helped me overcome any obstacle I faced, you know, whether it was lack of confidence or was it being turned down by everybody left and right, who the hell are you, right? You're a young kid in the block, you don't have gray hair, you know, who the hell are you, right, kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So I think it was, anytime I was dejected, I would think about that purpose, which led me to get started in the first place. 
that relationship is what kept me going. So I always tell people that you have to have a, a selfless motive, you know, when you are trying to be an entrepreneur or facing any challenge in life, because with a selfish motive, you know, selfish is what's in it for me, right? You have a selfish motive. It is very, very easy to quit because you're only thinking about yourself. So they say, right, in, in life, uh, the meaning of life is to find it with the purpose of life is to give it away. So I was just lucky I found that purpose early on in life. That's great. Um, and now I'm going to switch gears a little bit here. Now that you've gotten to this point where you, you knew you wanted to be an entrepreneur, you got to the point where you wanted to get out of this regular career and move towards this entrepreneurship side. How did you come up with your idea and, and how long did it take to come up with this idea? You know, in all honesty, like, you know, um, I'm a big believer that a lot of visions entrepreneurs come up with, they have to be revised and redirected because you're bound to fail, right? So I would never take the credit. I had a great vision early on when I started. I just fell in it by accident and I kept fast failing, right? And I kept redirecting with every failure. And finally, I think I found my, my vision after probably five or six years of a lot of struggle around it. Absolutely. So that's the real truth. So I don't really have, I didn't really have a vision. It just started something, you know, experimented. And I think that's the value I can associate a little bit to my degree that, you know, in manufacturing and management, you really do a lot of prototyping, right? When you're manufacturing things. So I kind of had that mentality, let me prototype something and try. If it fails, you try another one, right? So it was more of redirecting few times which led to success and really starting right first time. And how long did that process take? Uh, you know, some people, it takes years for them to come up with the right idea or the right thing to pursue. I think I could easily say it took me at least um, five to six years. Wow. Five to six years of struggle, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, that, that must have been very difficult, that, that whole journey going through, you know, five years of, uh, you know, not working probably, right? Uh, or <laughs> running around, like living on maxed out credit cards and not being taken seriously, you know, uh, everybody thinks that you're a fly by night. So it was very tough, uh, tough times early on. And I think that's what makes you stronger as well, right? I don't know why I went through all that, but I think going through that makes you realize it only makes you more and more tougher as a person. Yeah, absolutely. I imagine within those five years, you're thinking, you know, am I, am I really meant to do this? You know, like there's a lot of doubt in your mind as well. Right. I thought of quitting 500 times. <laughs> yeah. You know, actually I want to jump into a little bit about the business here. Um, and for those unfamiliar with the oil and gas industry, it's broken up into three segments, the upstream segment, otherwise known as exploration and production. You'll find companies that are searching for reservoirs and drilling oil and gas wells. Whereas midstream uh, relates to transportation from wells to refineries. This can include shipping, trucking, pipelines, and storage of raw materials. And then lastly, downstream, which involves the refinement of raw materials and the sale of the finished products, such as gasoline, jet fuel, heating oil, and asphalt. Amit, could you maybe explain where your company fits and what problem you're solving within that segment? Sure. So we really are focused on upstream oil and gas. The first thing we ever, uh, the first innovation we did was, you know, this industry when I came in was, they never believed data was an asset because very far behind the technology of Silicon Valley in general. So they really believed data is a liability. All the data was stored with vendors. So I really pushed hard and, and really fought my way into it by convincing 
First was the value of high quality and high resolution data and why you should own it because it's an asset, it's not a liability. So I think that was the first foray into which led to, which kind of formed the foundation of the organization. And the next big product, which really led to the success of this company was engineers in the upstream, they average have to touch, you know, seven to eight different softwares, whether it's Excel sheet, PowerPoints, boutique softwares, real-time softwares. They have to touch all these seven, eight softwares to do four big things every day. And those four big things are they have to plan. Like anybody else, you have to plan something, right? So planning, good example could be, I have to plan how much I'm going to spend in the next well I'm about to drill, right? So you go to some software to do that. Then you actually go and execute the plan you developed, right? And that could be different software. Then when you, you have to then compare how your plan is versus actual on a daily basis, because you could be spending average two to $3 million in that plan, right? So you want to compare every day how you're against the plan. Are you ahead of it? Are you behind it, right? And then you actually have to close the loop by reporting to the management teams that, you know, here are my results. Within these four big categories, there could be a lot of cumbersome workflows, like uploading data, downloading data, cleaning data and all that. So I took all that headaches away and I built this platform, we call it Prompt, where you can essentially do planning, operations, or what I mean, execution, comparing plan versus action reporting, all in a single source of truth. Just like you and I can do everything on a phone today, right? So really that was the big thing. And then on top of that, we solved cumbersome workflows. So instead of you trying to create a plan, which takes you two hours, now you can do it in a matter of minutes. So you could, you could do more with less. And when you can do more with less, what happens? It gives you more time to think. Yeah. It gives you more time to analyze. And as an engineer, when you get more time to analyze and think, you make smarter, better decisions, which ultimately leads in improvement of asset life and that wells you're drilling. So that was kind of the main focus and, and that's really what led to the company's success. Yeah, that's exciting. Um, you know, I think that a lot of people are thinking of like the next big idea and what can be this huge thing that everyone can use. But a lot of the time we are missing these smaller segments that are a gap for a lot of different sectors. Many entrepreneurs spend a lot of time finding product market fit. However, I read that one of your products signed over 40 exploration and production clients in less than 18 months. Right. Did you know that this product would be that successful at that time? Or again, did you have to go through multiple iterations before finding that fit? That's a great question. It was the latter. We went through multiple iterations, right? I think that's where that five to six years was lost, right? So I could easily say it took us five to six years of product to market mix before we hit a jackpot, right? So it did take that long because it's very hard to get it right first time. So I think that's where the time was spent. Like, you know, let's learn one thing and try if it fails, then let's redirect, right? So I think it was that two or three redirections which finally led to that uh, jackpot. Actually, I had no idea that, you know, what I'm doing could, could result in that, that big of uh, uh, clientele uh, in such a short time, time span. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, from the outside, when we look at successful businesses, it's hard to imagine that some of them are very different in the beginning. I guess we have an example of Twitter that used to be used to subscribe to podcasts, and then it changed to microblogging. Uh, when you look at Mobilize today, how has the company evolved since inception? You know, and it's the same thing, right? Like uh, the example you gave was a brilliant one. We started the data quality, really got that foundation right. As we were trying to grow, boom, market crash. Because one thing 
about oil and gas different than other industries is it's very cyclical in nature. And that's why I joke that my biggest regret is I didn't go to Silicon Valley and I ended up in, in Houston. You know, that was my first landing spot in the US. So problem with cyclical market is you are also fighting the external forces, not just the internal battles, right, of being an entrepreneur. So we started to really, you know, linearly grow in the data quality business and then the market crash. And I was like, what just happened, right? We were about to build and we got some good early adopters. We we're about to like expand across the chasm and go big and then boom, it crashes. And then you're kind of redirecting and starting again, right? Absolutely. So we had to go and really use that as a foundation towards big thing because once we had the high quality data, I knew if, if we can simplify the enterprise workflows, then the next logical step will be then start applying artificial intelligence on it. Because I knew from being in Silicon Valley, having you know, been spending there half my time, I knew that what Silicon Valley is thinking you know, five years ahead and how do I bring it today into my market? I think that was that intersection I always wanted to get exposure to. So really, luckily, we kept redirecting, but we never really had to redevelop, you know, a whole product per se. We just yeah. kept using the previous versions, for lack of better words, to be the foundation for the upcoming uh, or that redirection we just did. So this whole thing I explained to you earlier on that, you know, what led to that 40 clients in 18 months of trying to simplify enterprise workflows and bring everything in one software versus end users having to use eight, nine software for the same thing. You know, that was really based on the good foundation of data quality because they could trust what they would see uh, from, you know, normal analytics. And then once we got that foundation, then the next big thing, thing was, okay, now we have data from all these 40 plus, and then it became to 70 actually before the market again crashed thanks to COVID. Yeah. You know, now we're sitting on this huge data sets and now we're really applying more and more AI to try and take it to the next level. Yeah. And you, you know, you mentioned it yourself, COVID has impacted gas and oil largely in the last few months. How has that changed or how has it been a challenge for your business? You know, it has been a challenge because what COVID did is it has shrunk everything, right? If you think about it, it has shrunk economies, it has shrunk companies with the layoffs happening. It has shrunk even your social life, right? Mm-hmm. People are single can't date anymore, right? So luckily people are dating are in a good shape, right? Yeah. So you know, we obviously shrunk as well. So that is a challenge, right? That when the whole world around you is shrinking, you're bound to shrink, right, with it. So that's a big challenge. The question is, how do you overcome that challenge? And I think that's what we're really working towards right now. Yeah, and you have experience with uh, working very frugally. I, I read that you started this business with $3, and that's a, that's a big statement. Can you tell me how you were able to build such a successful company with so little capital? Yeah, it's a great question. I think one thing I learned from consulting is I knew my biggest strength was I could always be a good business advisor, right? So I really, you know, played to my strengths versus my weaknesses. And I offered, uh, you know, for the first two, three years, I offered my services free to people because I knew that was the only way to establish my reputation, right? So kept, I kept going to people and saying, you know, if you, you know, I have this background and, you know, if you, if you kind of do this, it will benefit and let me just work free for you. So very few people will turn down free stuff, right? So I think it was more of trying to create cash because of my background of consulting. I think that really helped. And, and of course, the university background helped because if you say I'm a Cambridge grad and I'm here to help you free, that has more power than 
I'm a grad from XYZ school, right? Right. So I think that really helped from that perspective. You know, that $3 didn't become three right away, right? I had some savings, right? Uh, you know, because we were paid really well in consulting. So I had some savings. It's just that saving dried up very quickly. And that I did not expect, right? Because I did not know, I'd never sold to B2B in my life, right? So I had no idea that it could take two to three years to sell anything. And that I didn't factor in. And I think that's why I ended up living on nothing because that dry was that I'm not going to quit. You know, simply because I have that goal in life. And if I quit now, then, you know, I may struggle to start again, right? Because it's just that experience. So that selfless drive just kept me going and uh, I just kept building on it. So I just I don't know that answers the question, but I think that that's really what kept me going. And I kept using my personal freelancing services to generate some cash and then keep investing in business. Yeah. And that's what I found. Uh, and I think finally I found Dipcoin Investors. I raised money from them. And then I think never looked back. Yeah. Speaking of the fundraise that you did, many startups will typically have multiple rounds of funding, roughly like every 12 to 18 months. However, I noticed that Mobilize, you've only raised one round in 2008, which was $1.8 million. What has been your experience with fundraising? How did you decide not to pursue additional funding? It wasn't about that I didn't want to pursue additional funding. I think it was a function of me being literally naive and stupid. When you, are, when you really need money badly, you'll take it from anybody. And I think this has been my biggest regret. So I think first I brought in the wrong partners. Because a lot of investors in oil and gas, they're very smart at hardware investing, but it's just not a software ecosystem. So I think that was my biggest regret and a mistake as well, that I was just like at a time where I knew, so I got funding from Chevron Tech Ventures, is one of the three syndicates. Mm -hmm. And I just assume that, oh my God, when I have a brand name like that, right? I am gonna be unstoppable. And that was just a naiveness, right? And that was also the biggest mistake I did. But the best thing I did is I could, in the last downturn, I could go and buy all these investors back because they really didn't add any value. And the function was not that they were bad investors, it's just that they were very hardware-driven investors. And they had no clue of how to really help build a software scalable organization because there are just not many VCs with that, with that kind of mindset in uh, Houston. Yeah. So I think that was really what happened uh, in hindsight. Well, and it sounds like you were able to buy them back pretty quickly after the, the fundraise, if it was during the downturn. So that's very fortunate, it sounds like, for the company. And obviously, you've been very successful since. I think and that was interesting because... So, you know, and this is, I, I highly recommend everybody should read this book, right? So at, at, at Cambridge, one of our professors told us to read this book called The Goal, G-O-A-L, by Ellie Goldratt. Okay. It's very similar to the just-in-time Kanban theory of uh, Japanese philosophy, but this is just an Israeli you know, individual who actually built this philosophy, right, of theory of constraints. And one thing he always said for any business, any business, three levers can tell you the health of a business. Those three levers are cash flow, net profit, and revenue. And he said, as long as these three, these three levers are always pointing north, we're going to be successful. But when these levers start pointing uh, negative, at least two of them, you're going to always struggle. Hmm. So I think I had that mindset, you know, through my learning that you got to keep these, at least two of these three levers always north. But my big emphasis always was when I got cash from investors is, I have to make company independence of these investors, no matter what, because 
they have, they literally can cut your wings. As an as entrepreneur, you know, you actually do not know things like they want you to have board meetings, which are very critical elements, right, of investments. You have to do corporate meetings. So all that really starts to add a lot of process, which a lot of entrepreneurs don't want to be part of, right? And that's where transitioning from founder to, I say founder to CEO is a big transition than actually trying to become an entrepreneur hmm. in the first place. Because once you are in that mode of investments, you have a lot of things. And that's why I think a lot of founders fail in that the bigger the journey of transitioning from a founder to a real CEO. Because as CEO, you are bound to get into these board meetings. You have, you have to write corporate minutes. You have to submit financials. You have to get audits done, all that. Imagine a creative person now getting into all this stuff. So that is extremely important. The real journey is not being an, a you know, good, highly educated individual to become, to jumping into entrepreneurship. To me, that's easy. The real journey is when you actually try to transition from founder to CEO. And you're mentioning that this, this transition is really when you take on investors because you have to be, now you're responsible to these investors. Absolutely. If you think about, you know, Uber founder, how he's out of the company, right? You think about the Zenefits guy, right? Uh, how he's out of the company, right? That's what happens. But they just couldn't transition smartly from good founders to say, and there's very, very, it's always outliers who transitioned, right? You know, Bill Gates did it, Zuckerberg did it, Steve Jobs did it, but even Steve Jobs actually was ousted from his own company before he came back, right? Mm -hmm. So they're not, they're a handful of successes from founder to CEO, but 95% plus fail for the reasons we just talked about here. Do you attribute that to uh, the way that you fundraise and the kind of like preference that you're giving to these investors? I think, look, when it comes to raising money, it always comes down to who has the power, right? It's like anything in life. And 99.9%, you know, when you're young, when you're an entrepreneur trying to build something, you don't have capital, they have the power. And they have the experience to back them up, right? Because they do that for a living. And you could be the first time entrepreneur who has no experience, right? And I was that unfortunate uh, individual who basically, I couldn't even afford a lawyer. So I just got convinced by them to sell a big stake for, for lit literally nothing, right? Because I had no idea. Mm -hmm. I was lucky once I figured it out, I bought them back. That was the, the good thing I could do, but that doesn't happen every time, right? That was something I regret and, and I hope no other entrepreneur faces that problem. And that's why I tell everybody that see how far you can take it with your own capital. But if you really want to get on, uh, investors, you have to be extremely careful because you know, I've been there where you, you really need that money badly. But then you don't have too many choices because very few people will come and actually fund you. So what do you do? So it's a very sick being in a hard and rock place. Yeah. You know, there's no right or wrong answer, right, for this. So I'm curious, after you, uh, you bought out the investors, how do you think that that changed the trajectory of your company? I think it really helped, um, uh, in my opinion. And I think that's a function of because I just never had the good investors in the first place, right? They were really good individuals and companies, but really from more hardware-centric. So it really gave me all the freedom to actually, you know, take the company to the next level. Uh, and that was a good thing. But I'm also, you know, in a, in a little bad spot as an individual because, you know, don't get me wrong, good VCs can really be big advantage to you. I just wasn't that lucky, right? And what I mean by that is a good VCs, you know, or B from, they come with a lot of experience uh, and failures to back them up in terms of how to scale companies, right? 
So on one hand, I gained a lot with those investors gone because they were adding no value in the first place anyway, except that brand name, which didn't help. I, I really gained a lot of that freedom to experiment and do what I wanted to and be more creative. So that was a good part of it. The bad part of it is when we grew so fast and so big, I had no idea how to actually take it to the next level. How to make it into a hundred million dollar company, right? I just did not know because I've never done it by myself, right? So I think that was kind of the negative which uh, comes with trying to be that lone wolf yourself. So there's always a plus and a minus to that, uh, to the question you asked. Yeah. All right. Were you able to get any advisors after spending more time in Silicon Valley? You know, not really because a lot of Silicon Valley uh, investors I met, they wanted me to actually live physically in Silicon Valley, right? Because they don't want to travel for board meetings down here to Houston. And, and sadly, but truly, a lot of Silicon Valley people just don't want to be in oil and gas in, in general, right? Mm-hmm. So that had always been a challenge. Um, did I meet some good friends or peer CEOs and some just good individuals who opened their playbooks to me? Absolutely. And that's really what helped the organization, right? But did I find someone who could dedicate their time to me as a mentor or as a, you know, on a regular basis? Absolutely not. Wow. So you've been, you've been doing this all on your own for a long time. I just keep learning. The best way to learn if nobody helps you is help yourself, right? <laughs> okay. And I, I want to switch gears here a little bit, but where do you uh, see your business going in the next five to 10 years when you consider the pandemic and the cyclical nature of oil and gas? What our focus has been really is take this time to reflect uh, because we have seen ups and downs, right? So my real focus is, you know, having that Silicon Valley dimension to, to everything I've done. I'm really starting to bring more and more ideas on what I saw work there. What are the, some of the best things I've seen there and how do you actually bring them in, in this downtime, right? So you can create new market categories in a simple examples you look at, right? Look at hotel tonight, right? What a cool app, how easy it is to use. I took the idea from there and, and I kind of, you know, made sure that our new app on the mobile is like hotel tonight, right? So I'm trying to bring all these kind of different ideas where we can create that experience, which I was fascinated by in Silicon Valley, and then see if we can actually fascinate the oil and gas individuals who never had chance to experience Silicon Valley to actually experience it through us, right? So that's kind of the things I've been really focusing um, my attention on right now. Right, and that is something that I've, I've noticed a lot more about when you're looking at newer startups, they're focusing on providing a better experience for their clients than, than they're currently used to. Uh, so I think that that's a great idea. Um, I want to jump back, actually, a question that I was curious about when starting your business. What did you do? So you didn't have a uh, computer science background, assuming you didn't, have, didn't know how to code. Is that something that you were looking for uh, immediately when you were thinking about your new business idea? Did you start looking for a co-founder or did you think about hiring uh, an engineer separately? Yeah, I think that's exactly what I did, right? I couldn't find a co-founder because not many people would be willing for us to sweat equity. Mm-hmm. And I think one of my disadvantages was I didn't go schooling, schooling here, right? And most of my mates were actually in England. That was kind of a, uh, an issue I was facing. So what I was doing is any money I was making on consulting. So first I basically hired someone on my own money, right? Because I had 25, 30 grand savings. So I just paid it to someone to actually build something for me. Then, you know, I kind of took it to the market, offered myself free consulting, sold people on my vision, you know, which wasn't the, the best vision that time, but it was good enough to, you know, by giving it free for a few months, you know, it got enough attention where, you know, one company said, okay, you know, I'll give you $200,000 to, to try something. Then I hired a little bit more engineers, right? Mm-hmm. 
But I think one thing which, which hurt me in that time, and this is what happens when you're a business entrepreneur, not a tech entrepreneur. I got fooled, for lack of better words, by a lot of these tech people because they could easily fool me into, hey, you know, I'm going to do this and it's very scalable. Yeah. And you find off a prototype that is actually not scalable. But because they're charging you an hourly rate as a contractor, you have already paid them, right? So those are some of the unpleasant experiences. And I, I always tell people, I think the best learning for me was that time is, yes, technology is everything, but there are many other businesses you can focus on versus just technology. And that was my regret that, uh, you know, I was learning the hard way. I was actually making these tech people more richer than ever becoming richer myself. But then again, for me, the drive was never money, right? Right. And I, that's why I never valued anything around purely money. Absolutely. You know, and, and maybe that's what led to the success because to me, there's always saying, right, when you focus on value, money follows you. When you focus on money, the money comes or value comes. You know, though I was living uh, in a very um, uncomfortable situations, you know, probably as, as good as you can call me a homeless at that time. But again, it was never about money. It, it was about uh, something big you wanted to out there. Wow. But yeah, those are kind of the bad things I did experience. Uh, and I still pay that price, right? Not having that tech co-founder with you hurts you a lot because you're basically testing and trying, you know, out of the hundreds and thousands of developers you have out there. Yeah, and I can imagine that being difficult, not knowing how long these things take to develop as well. Like, you know, you may be paying them way more than it's actually worth. I know there's already been a lot of valuable insights that you've shared, but what advice can you give to those who are trying to start a business now? I think the first thing I would say is, and this is just based on my experiences, right? Any business you want to start, it just cannot just have an idea, right? You have to fill some other gaps, right? So you have to identify, so you may have the best idea, right? That's great. But you need to find someone who has attention to detail because a lot of entrepreneurs don't have attention to details. They're very, very objective and high level. And that's what they're supposed to be. So I would make sure that first you hopefully can identify. And if I was to turn the clock back, I would have told you exactly what I'm about to tell you, right? Find someone who's attention to detail so they can manage your operations. Mm -hmm. Because as you go to more than four or five people, that is going to start to weigh you in, whether you like it or not, right? That's going to weigh in. So have someone, so someone you have to find with operations background. You need someone with a tech background if that is not your forte. And you need someone with at least a lawyer, you know, who is at least a friend who's willing to give sweat equity because you have nothing that time. So I would always make sure you have these four combinations because I'm assuming as a creative person, you automatically become a good marketer because social media channels are easy to exploit these days, right? Mm -hmm. you know? And so even if you don't have a real marketing guru with you, that's okay at the beginning. Fill these four dimensions and at least find two or three co-founders you know, who can fill these roles. That would be my first advice. Second thing, you know, which I was unfortunate, I'd never had the blessing uh, was find a good mentor. Key is don't find them. You know, there are a lot of people who are willing to give advice, trust me. But it's sometimes it's irrelevant because in a simple example, let's say you want to build a software company in a business to business space. You have someone who's older, wiser, but they have never built a business, a software business selling to B2B. And all they have done in their lifetime is worked at a, as a professor at a university. That is a good advisor, but not a mentor. Mm -hmm. The real mentor is who is almost apple to apple comparison to what you're trying to do. They have been there, done it. And I think that's my second, uh, second thing I recommend. Third thing I highly recommend to entrepreneurs is develop the soft skills because I had to learn them the hard way. Because just like when I was in university, no one's teaching you how to manage stress. 
No one is teaching you how to develop the emotional intelligence we hear about today, right? No one's teaching you how you're gonna handle betrayal because you are gonna get betrayed, period. Any business you take in that journey, you're gonna have some betrayal, whether you like it or not. So these are soft skills which no one was teaching in the university, right? So I really feel that for me, I learned in the hard way, but I highly encourage people to study books or leverage some of the other things out there to actually really you know, make sure that you are covering yourself and covering all the bases. Yeah, I think that's great advice to make sure you have a great team and find people that can help you in areas where you have less knowledge. And thanks for highlighting soft skills. I think uh, a lot of people tend to focus primarily on their technical skills when they start off their career but there's a lot to be said uh, about soft skills as well. How you work with others is just as important as the ability to get the job done. Exactly. So I guess the second question I had here, given the knowledge that you have now, uh, what advice would you give to your college self? <sighs> let, me, let me think on this one. Um, the three things I would say is, you know, to not, you know, so let's, let's take it one, step, one thing at a time. Adaptability is very critical, right? Because to me, if you're rigid, you will never be successful. So adaptability is one. Second is something which I believe lots of people don't have it. And if they have it, they just don't know how to harness it. And that sense of urgency in anything you do. So in college, right, we're all, right? It's easy to just throw your time in parties and let's just go out and then you have fun. But, you know, knowing when to dissect that, you know, I have this thing I want to finish today and I don't want to postpone it tomorrow. I can't teach you that, right? You just have to either have it or you don't, right? So I would say that really have that sense of urgency in anything you do. And one more thing is really avoid negativity because today with social media, it's so easy to get more negative thoughts in your mind than positive, mm -hmm. right? So like I have a discipline, you know, I don't like to even open my Facebook more than once a week. And I think that's not because I don't want to, because I have my friends there, right? But it's because I see so much crap on it. I disabled my Twitter account as an example, right? For that reason, because there's too much crap out there. There's good stuff, but I know it, overall it's feeding more negative than positive, right? So I think also avoid negativity. So I think that's probably an advice I'll give to my college self. Definitely, I, I feel the same way. Although there's a lot of great things about it, I agree social media can have a toxic nature that could ultimately distract you from spending more time and energy on the things you care about. You know, one thing I forgot to mention, which is highly important because we all have it, especially when we are younger, is, you know, ego. Mm -hmm. You know, I read somewhere, I think Einstein said, ego equals one divided by knowledge, right? But the challenge is when you're younger, you have so much emotions which control you. And that they, they say, right, young and brash kind of thinking, right? And now with social media, so transparency, we have instant gratification, we make instant decisions, and we just think we know it all. So my, my fourth thing I would highly advise is, you know, have a mindset of being a sponge, which means keep learning, right? Mm -hmm. Versus always assuming that I just know everything and I know I know this topic, I don't need to learn anymore, right? So I really believe that you got to have very less ego and that's very, very hard, especially when you're younger because you're just more controlled by emotions and, and folks around you. And yeah. peer pressure makes you, you know, fall into ego trap much quicker than anything else. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think it's a dangerous, dangerous world we live in right now. <laughs> <That's> right. <laughs> and then the last question I had for you actually is in today's world, uh, what skills do you think are pivotal for students to have a successful career? 
oftentimes people reference like uh, computer science, for example, or coding, because that's a very like lucrative job right now, at least in Silicon Valley. So I'm curious what skills you think would be necessary for students moving forward. Well, I think, you know, you're right. And this is a classic example of there's so much hysteria about coding and data science and machine learning. Oh my God, we should just all jump in, right? And to me, you have to find opportunities which are, you know, view things with more wide angle opportunity than a tunnel vision, right? So yes, Silicon Valley is all about technology, but think about, we only have one planet Earth, right? So there are a lot of things which you can do around environmental and social governance today. So that is, to me, a, a huge trillion dollar opportunity where you can really make a big difference. Think about Generation Z, you know, I've, I've studied a little bit myself and I found that they are very big about homelessness and uh, environment is a very big thing to them. So think about opportunities and how you can solve problems like these ones, because there's a lot of money in the market, which is getting saturated around technology today. But you will see that a lot of this big money is starting to move in these areas, especially after the pandemic, right? So I highly encourage that, you know, think about careers around what are the ESG, right? Environmental and social governance, right? There are a lot of opportunities around that. A lot of opportunities around how do we keep our, our planet safe, right? You can address that through technology or you can address that without technology. And I think that's one of the things I always looked at, you know, when I was graduating, everybody wants to go and work in smart sectors, right? Marketing, retail and accounting, right? Mm-hmm. But I purposely wanted to work in manufacturing because it's not sexy, right? If you think about it, supply chains, right? It's, it's important, but not sexy, right? So I think you have to find those unsexy markets where you will see yourself making a difference in maybe a few years down the road, uh, especially if you're about to graduate now. And the key is, you know, can I spot those unsexy markets or unsexy categories mm-hmm. and really hone my skills in that because that's where you make the big difference. And that's why if you look at, you know, phase drive today, you know, how popular is becoming in Canada because Uber totally ignored that space. And phase drive just took Uber's model and really focused on environment with it, right? So I would say start thinking in that dimension than just that I want to study data science and just become a machine learning. Uh, To me, I think that's a big tunnel vision. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's great advice. I think Right now, uh, we're, we're starting to see the success of these companies that are focusing on environmental issues, which is a great sign because not too long ago, it was almost something that nobody would want to touch. Exactly. Um, so I think that that's great. No, I think pandemic has made us reset that we're not above the nature. Mm-hmm. We thought until now we're above the nature. The pandemic has told us, taught us all that we're not above the nature. Absolutely. And I think there's some good innovations are waiting to happen in that space. Yeah. Well, Amit, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today and I appreciate you taking the time to talk with me. Thank you so much. Thank you as well. Cheers, Joe. Cheers.